Hey guys, it's Sunday Reading Day, and that means I'll be reading from a paranormal-themed book. The title, The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey, good evening, everybody. How's everyone doing? I hope you had a great day. I had a great day. My name is Charlotte, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner. Give me a second here. I forgot to hit TikTok, so bear with me. Let's do that again. Hey, everybody. How's everybody doing? Uh, it's Wednesday evening, and uh, California time is 6.30 p.m. Uh, my name is Sean, and I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. We're 45 strong up and down the state, which means if you have a paranormal need, we can get to you. Uh, it might take us a couple days because California is a huge state, but uh, we, do, we will definitely get to you. In the case that we can't get to you right away, we offer a psychic services where they can call you ahead of time, talk about what you have, and in most cases, they can settle the activity down. I want to welcome everybody tonight. Um, I'm going to be reading tonight. Uh, the guest we had uh, got sick, and so I do not have a, guest, a live guest tonight, but I will be reading tonight. I want to say hello to everyone on TikTok. I can see you come up, but I can't see what you're writing because I'm blind. I'm sorry, but I will interact with you the best I can. Just to let everybody know, I do have a live goal of 50 Lucy the Llamas, and if you find it in your heart to donate, you're not required to, but if you can find it in your heart to donate, that helps me stay on the air and pay, my, and pay the bills just for the show, you know, the internet and things like that. Okay. All right. Coming back over here. If you're watching from Facebook and you haven't done so already, please be sure to hit that follow button if you like what what, what, what I'm doing tonight. If you're going over to YouTube, please do the same thing. Uh, hit that hit that subscribe button. And uh, that's because you know there's over 781 videos over at YouTube, and each one of those videos has to do with this show. Okay. We uh, broadcast Sundays through Friday, and we've got all kinds of topics. Sundays we we, we normally read. Uh, but the rest of the week, we talk about UFOs, we talk about monsters, you name it, we talk about it, ghosts, the whole thing. If you go to the YouTube site, I have started to put those things in folders so you can find them easier. And that YouTube site, for the people, for everyone on Facebook, is youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. Uh, I have been doing, I have been, no, I've owned a paranormal team for 18 years. We've been doing investigations in Northern California. So we're a very experienced team. I know what I'm talking about. You know, it's, a, it's, it's not something that you're an expert at, but I've done enough to where I know what's right, what's wrong, you know, what to do in certain cases and stuff. And again, if you feel it in your heart to donate, that's great. Nobody's required to, but it will, it will help me pay my monthly bills. You know, that's all I want to do is stay on the air with this show. Okay. Also, over on TikTok, I'm looking for 4,000 likes. So if you could double tap that screen while I'm reading the book, that would be great. I'd really appreciate it because, you know, the, the more likes I get, the, the more I get put on the FYP for TikTok as well. 
Same thing with you guys over here at Facebook and YouTube. Be sure, be sure to show me some love, right? Give me some thumbs up, some happy faces, some smiles, hearts, whatever. Because what that does is, is, is uh, well, we'll say TikTok, Facebook, and YouTube see that. And what they do is that their computer stash on it, and they start distributing us out to more people. So it's very helpful to get to gather more followers. Always looking for followers. I'm looking for my thousand subscribers. I'm like almost 250 away on YouTube, so I could get that done by Christmas. That would be great too as well. I am offering subscriptions on TikTok. Uh, we're gonna I'm gonna be doing a lot more on TikTok. We're gonna be doing psychic readings and tarot card readings and things like that. This is just uh, usually we read Sunday night, and I'm trying to build up to my 3,000 on TikTok so you guys can see my show live as well. But in the meantime, like tomorrow, when I have my guest on for tomorrow, come on over to youtube.com forward slash at California Hunts Radio. You can check us out. Okay, so it's 637 right now, and I'm going to read for about an hour. And this is The Haunting and Legend, uh, the, the, the Haunting and History of Lizzie Borden by Rebecca F. Pittman. Great book. She does a lot, She's done a lot of research, and uh, it's very thorough. It, it takes you through the, you know, uh, it takes you through what happened before the murders. You know, the circumstances, it takes you through the murders, the investigations, the uh, trials that she went through. And it also talks about what happened after and is the house haunted now and things like that. So we'll be getting into that later on with this book. But right now, this is the third day of reading this book. We, we've, we've read it before. Two years ago, I read it. So I'm excited to be able to read it again to everybody. So anyway, over on TikTok, welcome to everybody that's joining the chat. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I'm going to be reading for about an hour. All right, guys, so if there's anybody around you that uh, you might think would like this, be, feel free to share. I'd really appreciate sharing. Get the word out about my little show. All right, so here we go. I am going to be reading. If you're having dinner right now, have a seat, eat your dinner, listen to me read. And if you're doing other stuff, carry me around the house. I've had people carry, you know, follow me, you know, carry me around the house when they're doing laundry and stuff. It's cool. It's cool. Or if you're in a situation where your day is done, maybe you're on the East Coast and your day is done, uh, put your, you know, sit down on the couch, put, put your fuzzies on your feet, put your feet up, turn down the lights, sit by the fire, whatever, and give it a listen, okay? So this is the, the history and haunting of Lizzie Borden. The Swansea upper farm area was large, over 220 acres, and was a huge acreage with cattle, other livestock, crops, and various income, producing commodities. Mr. Eddie managed his farm. On a separate parcel was the lower farm, where the Bordens summered, and Lizzie spent time fishing her, with her father on Coles River just down the slope. An 1895 map shows Andrew owned two estates on this parcel along Gardner's Neck Road, one of which is still standing, the summer home. Albert Johnson was the overseer here. Whenever John Morris is interviewed about Swansea, he never says the lower farm or upper farm. He simply says the farm. This is convenient if you look closely. John says his farm over there, he was talking about the old lady's home. The other public bequest conversation is close to secrecy. Not just the contents, but the date the conversation occurred. What if John wasn't talking about one farm or the other, the upper farm or the lower farm, but both farms? The old lady's home, according to the author's belief, was the nickname he and Andrew came up with for the lower farm where the family spent their summers. This was not the income-producing farm, but a beautiful home near the river. This may have been slated to be set aside for Abby, her mother, half-sister, and other elderly women who were without support in the Borden family. 
Some of these in the board and slash more slidage were John's Aunt Catherine Bowdrey, Boudry, the elderly Mrs. Vinicum, which is Abby's friend, Mrs. Mary Morse, the widow in Fall River, and possibly for the other Aunt Mary Morse, who lived in Warren and whose husband was already 82. This couple had two spinster daughters, Elizabeth and Henrietta, in their 40s and 50s. It would be a secure place for the women to live out their days in peace when the time came without worry about rent or companionship. Andrew was turning 70. His time was getting short by 1892 standards. Lizzie and Emma had stopped joining Andrew and Abby at the annual summer vacations at the lower farm five years earlier when the Cold War began between Andrew's daughters and his wife. Lizzie's own testimony admits she has not been to the farm in five years. Why leave this home that Abby loved and treasured, and treasured her vacation home over there Two two daughters who had turned their backs on it. That brings us to the upper farm and the epicenter of the storm. This was set up for cattle, horses, and crops. That there were already cattle there was witnessed by John Morse coming over to the farm the night before the murders and Mr. Eddy asking him about the two oxen he was to take to Butcher Davis. Okay. 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 For one, okay. To pick up two oxen for William Davis, who ran a butcher and horse trading business in South Dartmouth. John lived with the Davises and helped with the logistics of running it. Thursday, Thursday morning, the day of the murders, John wrote to William Vinicum in Swansea, Swansea, whom he had just visited for supper the day before, about some cattle. Vinicum was related to John through his maternal grandmother's side. Through his maternal grandmother's side, John also just bought eighty Mustang horses in from Iowa. There were three other players in this dangerous chess game, as we will soon find out, who also had an interest in the upper farm, a business deal so far-reaching that it may as well have been called all in the family. Andrew may have been contemplating deeding not one, but both of the farms under Abby's name, one for the old lady's home, which is the lower farm, and one for the upper farm, with John Morris actually running a huge cattle and horse trading operation, and it was all about to explode. Other players enter the plot. By the summer months of 1892, there was much activity concerning the upper form of Swansea. John Morris was spinning more plates than an accomplished circus act. But at some point, there's usually the sound of crashing glass. On John Morris's visit to Fall River at the end of June, he brought with him William Davis's daughter, Alice. Alice was 17 years old and had known John most of her life. He lived with her family many years before and was now back living with them in South Dartmouth and helping with her father and grandfather's meat business. The butcher trade was also one involving horse trading and cattle, an area in which John V. Morris was well acquainted. According to John Morris's inquest testimony about his June visit, he said he came over in the morning and went back at night. I can tell about, the, I can tell about that time if you want me to. There was a lady come over, Mr. Davis's daughter, with me. We drove over in the afternoon. I hired a horse. And Mr. Borden's daughter went to ride. We went home to the steamboat. I took her home after dark. In one paragraph, John Morris contradicts himself. He first said he came over in the morning, only to say two sentences later, we drove over in the afternoon. I believe both are correct. John was an early riser, as most farmers are. When at the Borden's, he was up at six. 6 a.m. It is possible he drove Alice Davis over to the Swansea farm first to show it to her, as we will see, 
John was showing the farm to another young woman. Was he shopping for a future housekeeper for the lower farm homestead? One to help with the old lady's farm? Or was there another farmhouse up Gardner's Neck Road that is no longer standing? Quote, about the 10th of July, John was back. Quote, I did not stay but a short time, John testified to Attorney Knowlton during the inquest. I was here overnight, but I went down to an answer on the Stafford Avenue at that time, Stafford Road. Catherine Baudry, Catherine Baudry is John's mother, Rody's sister. He testified he did not see Lizzie during either visit. During this July return to Fall River, John took a detour to Warren, Rhode Island, where he picked up his niece, Annie Morris. Annie was questioned by a Fall River Herald reporter the day of the murders concerning her uncle John Morris. At the time of the interview, Annie and her brother William were staying with the, da with the Daniel Emery family on, on White Boston Street, a mile from the Borden house. She was vacationing there from her home in Minnesota. Her father, William Morse, is John's brother. Excerpt from the Fall River Herald, August 4th, 1892. Morse's niece was asking if she had ever seen her uncle, John, before, and replied that she had. She had met him when she was five years old, and three weeks ago, he had taken her from the cars in Warren to the Borden farm in Swansea. When Morris is asked about his niece during his inquest testimony, his answer is quite different. Attorney Knowlton, attorney, this is Attorney Knowlton, did you see the relatives you, the relatives you were there to see? Morris, I saw one. The young man was out. I did not see him. Knowlton, what was the young woman's name? Morris, Annie Morris. She was indisposed while I was there. She was on the lounge part of the time. Of the time. She is my brother's daughter. Knowlton, did she come? Did, did she come from the same part of the West you lived? Morris, she belonged up in Minnesota. I went there first when he moved out west years ago. Knowlton, the first you heard of her being there was from Mr. Borden. Morris testified Andrew Borden told him the night before the murders to go over to the Emery's to see his relatives who were stopping there. Morris. No, I was at her grandmother's. They told me she was there and had gone to Providence with one of her cousins. When I got off the cars, they got on. I just barely saw her. John's need to lie about something as innocent as giving his young niece a ride to see the Borden farm is strange, to say the least. It smacks of secrecy. Was Annie being shown the farmhouse as a possible housekeeper for a future business concern as well? He was wearing what looked like baseball shoes. During John's July visit, he and Andrew drove over to the Swansea farm. He was asked about it by Attorney Knowlton during his inquest testimony. Morse, Mr. Borden, while I was over there sometime in July that I speak of, wanted to know if I knew of a man he could get on his farm to take charge of it. I told him I did not know. I would see. When I got back to self-dartmouth, I wrote him that I knew of a man I thought would suit him. He would send him over. I would send him over. He wrote back to me he had rather I would wait until I saw him. I have his letter in my pocket, if you want to see it. The witness produces the letter. Dated July 25th, 1892. As we will see, John did send a man to see Andrew when they thought Lizzie was safe away on her vacation to Marion. They had not expected her to return home unexpectedly Monday morning, August 1st. It was too late to warn John and the young man he had found to take charge of the Swansea farm. 
New York Times, Fall River, Massachusetts, August 6, 1892. Some interesting clues were worked out by the police today relative to two mysterious visitors at the Borden homestead prior to the assassination of old Mr. and Mrs. Borden. No positive light was thrown on the mystery of the murders, however. Quote, last Monday morning about 9 o'clock, a horse and buggy turned into 2nd Street out of spring and stopped in front of the Borden residence. A man who was employed nearby sat in his buggy almost opposite and facing south. He had ample opportunity and time to take a careful look at the vehicle, and the circumstances of the two strange men calling at the Borden house made an impression on his mind, which he remembers distinctly. One of the men got out of the buggy and rang the doorbell. Excuse me. As he stood there, the observer saw him plainly and remembers that his description was that of a man about 25 years of age with a sallow complexion, soft hat, dark trousers, with a wide strip of dark material running down the leg, and russet or MS baseball shoes. He was about 5 feet 9 inches high. The shoes in particular attracted his attention as they were of a peculiar make and color and were laced. Mr. Borden opened the door, and the man spoke a few words and was admitted. The man who remained in the buggy was not as closely scrutinized, and his description not so well remembered. The man who entered remained about ten minutes and then came out with his hat in his hand. The team was driven off in the direction of Pleasant Street. The, the circumstance is considered of importance when the fact is known that the police have in their possession knowledge of the only person who tells of having seen a strange man at the Borden house at the time of the murders. The mysterious caller was never identified by police. He came and went, shrouded in a cloak of mystery, leaving only one clue. He was wearing russet baseball shoes. The stranger appearing on Andrew Borden's doorstep that Monday before the murders was carefully chosen. He had to be someone Lizzie would not have recognized, and more importantly, he had to be a relative who would benefit from his connection with the Swansea farm. Andrew had asked John to find him a man to take charge of the farm, and John sent one to him. His name was James Jim Chatterhorn, Chatterton, sorry, and he was a professional baseball player for the Kansas City Cowboys and the Salem Fairies. For the first time ever, we find out who the mysterious man was ringing Andrew's doorbell. Three days before the murders, James Jim Chatterton was born, 1864, in Williamsburg, New York. He was 28 in 1892. The witness said of the man he saw on Andrew's step. In reality, he was about 25. He married Mary May Bright, January 10, 1891, in Raymond, New Hampshire. In 1884 and 1887, he played for the Kansas City Cowboys and the Salem Fairies, respectively. In 1884, he was living in Lynn, Massachusetts, two hours from Fall River. He was the sole supporter of his widowed mother and his disabled older brother. He had another brother, Joseph, who was also living in Lynn and was 31. Their brother, William H. Chatterhorn, likewise, was living in Lynn and was 20 years old in 1892. Together, they worked with Joseph's wife, wife's parents in a shoemaking business, each one with a different skill set, such as stitcher, stretcher, tanner, etc. James and Joseph's father was James Martin Chatterton. He was the brother of Elvira Chatterton, who married Charles E. Morris of Hoboken, New Jersey. Charles was a salesman in the jewelry business. James Martin Chatterton, Jim Joseph, and William's father, was John Vinicum Morse's uncle, making the three boys John's cousins. Wow. 
Lizzie may not have been very familiar with this. Uh, Lizzie, Lizzie, I'm sorry. Lizzie may not have been very familiar with this side of the family, who were living in New York. Jim traveled a lot in the baseball circuit and bounced around from one address to another. His baseball career had pretty much fizzled out. He was now a newlywed and living two hours from Fall River. John Morris may have felt it safe to send him to see Andrew to interview as a foreman for the Swansea farm, hoping Lizzie wouldn't recognize him if she did see him. At the time Jim was sent to the Borden house, it was thought Lizzie was safely away in Marion and Emma in Fairhaven. She had materialized out of thin air before they could call off Jim's visit to see Andrew. Was it a coincidence that the Chatterton's were in a family-run shoe business requiring an ongoing supply of leather? Would that make a nice fit for a farm about to expand its cattle connections? And Jim's mother was a widow who would later die in 1921 at the age of 84. Was she to be part of the old lady's home, even though she was only 55 in 1892? If Jim and his new wife moved into one of the two Swanson Swansea lower farmhouses. His mother may have needed a place as well, as he had been supporting her, perhaps in old lady's home. Jim was not the only one of his family to play a part in the mystery. It's just possible his brother Joseph had a role to carry out on the morning of the murders. Let me check one thing. Double check my audio. Give me a second. Make sure nothing's turned off. Because I was messing with it yesterday. Okay, yeah. Hello. Hello, everybody over TikTok. Double tap that screen, please. <clears throat> Show me some love. Send me some hearts. All right. Same thing for Facebook and Twitter and YouTube tonight. Show me some love. Jim was not the only one of his family to play a part in a mystery. And we are reading the uh, history and haunting of Lizzie Borden today. Jim was not the only one of his family to play a part in a mystery. It's just possible his brother, Joseph, had a role to carry out on the morning of the murders. John Morris's plates were still spinning faster and faster as July continued on in the unrelenting New England heat. The troops from South Dartmouth to Westport, Westport to Fairhaven, Fairhaven to New Bedford, New Bedford to Fall River, and Fall River to Swansea and Warren must have been dizzying. Lizzie wasn't the only one following his every move. The police were showing an active interest in his pursuits, even before the day of the murders. This is the New, New Bedford Daily Mercury, Tuesday, August, New Bedford Daily Mercury, Tuesday, August 9, 1892. State Officer George F. Seaver, Fall River, Massachusetts. Parentheses. Quotes. Westport promises something and again comes to the front in the flat contradiction of John V. Morse's statement that he had no knowledge whatsoever of the house traders at Westport. End of quote. State Detective Seaver said, Before I knew anything about this case whatsoever, I heard that a large consignment of wild horses to John V. Morris had arrived at Westport, and I went down to see them. I wanted to see the Mustangs and set them lasso free. There were 80 horses, I should think, together. I went down there with a gentleman from Westport Factory and saw the horses in a field. They were consigned to John V. Morris of South Dartmouth. There are farmers there, and it is the best place to make a trade. There had been an auction, and about 12 horses had been sold by the auctioneer. That was a week ago today, exactly. And Morse was the man to whom they were consigned. The murders happened about two days later, and I knew nothing of the case until Thursday night. According to the New Bedford Daily News Mercury, Tuesday, August 2nd, 
Quote, two carloads of horses direct from Iowa have been pastured on the land of Stephen P. Kirby during the past week. They have attracted many visitors, and several of them have been sold. When confronted during his inquest testimony by Knowlton about the horse business making headlines before the murders, the attorney asked John Morse, Knowlton, have you any connection with the horse business? Morse, not recently. I bought some horses here when I, when I came here two years ago. Two, two years and a half ago, he says. Knowlton, all sold out now? Morris, yes, sir. Knowlton, have you had any dealings in horses since then? Morris, a little along occasionally, not to amount to anything. John's business partner, Mr. William Davis, was also heavy in the horse trading. Mr. Davis was two years and a half. It keeps skipping weird on me, I'm sorry. Mr. Davis was involved with the band of traders at Westport. When police interviewed him concerning his involvement with the horse dealings, he denied any connection and backed up John Morris later when a reporter cornered he and Mr. Howe when they visited Morris a few days after the murders. End quote. Stephen P. Kirby owned the land where the horses were pastured. He was a farmer. Born and raised in Westport, Massachusetts, he was married twice. His first wife was Harriet in Brownell of Westport. She died and was buried in Fairhaven, Massachusetts. It is probably not a stretch to consider her a relative of the Brownells, with whom Emma Borden was vacationing in Fairhaven during the time of the murders. Helen Brownell and her mother, Rebecca, were more than just good friends of Emma's. They were related to the Bordens through their great-great-grandmother, Penelope Reed. If Harriet Brownell was indeed related to Helen Brownell, then Stephen P. Kirby was related to the Bordens, and hence John Morris. Gives me a headache, you guys. Through a convoluted chain of, famili of familial events. And Charles T. Kirby owned the livery at 13 Rock Street in Fall River, the same livery for which John Morris rented a horse and buggy the day before the Borden murders. If that isn't enough to give Kevin Bacon six degrees a run for its money, George E. Howe is also cousins with John and involved in the horse deal. This is the same George Howe that John visited the morning after the murders. George owned a drugstore in Fall River across the street from the post office. John came into the store Friday one day after the murders, to purchase a stamp for a letter he would send in haste to William Davis. He then dashed across the street to the post office, a post office obviously without stamps. So the horses were on Kirby's farm two days before the murders. On the day of the murders, the Fall River Herald said regarding John Morris, quote, nothing definite about his affairs is known other than he had told friends that he had brought a trainload of horses with him from Iowa to sell, and they were now at Fairhaven. Fairhaven. Emma is vacationing in Fairhaven, and Kirby's ex-in-laws may be living in Fairhaven. It would appear the horses were hurriedly moved to Fairhaven as the police interest in Westport ramped up. To where? Helen Brownell's father, Alan Brownell, was a sea captain. He married Rebecca Delano in 1837, and they had several children, one of which was Emma's friend Helen. Sadly, two of Helen's brothers died young. When Alan Brownell retired from the sea, he took up his dream of being a gentleman farmer. The 1870 census states his occupation as farmer. The 1880 census lists him simply as agriculture. He is also listed that year as a retired sea captain at 80 years of age. Helen and her elderly mother, Rebecca, I told you she was really into details, okay, were living at Rebecca's brother's house, Moses Delano, at 19, with Moses Delano, yeah, from brother's house, Moses Delano, okay, at 19 Green Street during Emma's vacation with them during the murders. 
Helen's father, Alan, passed away in 1884, and the women were probably unable to keep the farm up. Did the farm Helen's father owned still exist, run by someone else in the family? Would it be a good temporary stop for a herd of wild mustangs? There's also the Morris relatives living in Fairhaven, as mentioned earlier. Charles and Mary Morse. Did they own some property suitable to pasture of herd of horses? Just passing through on their way to their new home in Swansea. During the days leading up to the murders, the players of this dangerous grain tried desperately to move each piece into place. The horses resembled the whirling carousel by this time, as they were moved from Iowa to Westport to Fairhaven. The next stop would be to move them over to the Swansea farm within a few days and begin a new venture. But Lizzie had other ideas. Just to make clear that this station is a PG-13 rated R station, if you hear anything that offends you in this book, like when the murders when the murders are described, please move on. Don't turn me into the the TikTok police or the Facebook police or the YouTube police, because it's just a book. I have permission to read it from the author and the publisher, and there's a lot of other places that you can go and enjoy yourselves. Maybe maybe a Disney streamer or someplace like that. So. Uh, please just move on. Don't turn me into TikTok. I'd really appreciate it. Chapter 6. A Train Ride in New Bedford. On July 15, 1892, only two weeks before Andrew and Abby Borger found hacked to death in their home on 2nd Street, the two sisters decided to sell their deed to the Ferry Street house back to their father. Charles C. Cook was questioned by Officer Medley shortly after the murders. Mr. Cook stated, I am business manager for Mr. Andrew J. Borden for the Borden Block. I did not see Mr. Borden Thursday, the day of the murders. I have had the charge of the block almost since it was built. He used to come in once in a while, but not every day, nearly always alone. The only other person who ever came with him was his wife, excepting once when Lizzie came with him to sign a deed conveying some property she owned to her father. The property was owned jointly by the two sisters and was situated on Ferry Street. Lizzie has been in three or four times once, she came to ask me about the value of the property she was going to convey to her father. I told her, and she went away. Officer Medley, Mr. Cook, Officer Medley, Mr. Cook, do you know of anything that would lead you to imagine that Lizzie and her father did not get along well together? End, end quote. Cook, I do not like to answer that question on account of my position as custodian of the property, as I do not know what my relations may be with the family. When this thing, the murder case, is settled. Several things are of interest here. One, that Lizzie has been in several times to see a man who is a custodian of property for her father's real estate holdings. At that time, Lizzie and Emma only owned Lizzie and Emma's only owned property was their grandfather's house on Ferry Street, which was the, which their father gave to them to placate the sisters after their blow-up concerning his gift of the house on Fourth Street to Abby's sister. What other business did Lizzie have with Charles Cook? Was she fishing to find out if transfers of deeds were in the making? Asking to see the Swansea files? The second thing of interest is Lizzie's apparent lack of trust in her father. She wanted to know the value of the Ferry Street house before she sold it back to her father. A question Andrew could have answered. Yet. She asked his manager. As it happened, Andrew paid Emma and Lizzie $5,000 for the deed. $2,000 more than its value. And thirdly, when Lizzie asked if when asked if Lizzie and her father got along, Mr. Cook declines to answer, as it is possible he will continue to act as property manager for the sisters, as they will inherit their father's properties, which he did. If the relationship between Lizzie and Andrew was 
was, was fine. You would think he would answer to that point. The fact that he declines to answer is suggestive. Had Andrew asked Cook to specifically keep details from Lizzie pertaining to his affairs, should she ask? It had become apparent to the manager that all was not well in the Borden household. Three days after the sisters deeded back the house on Ferry Street to their father, they headed off for their summer vacation. As mentioned earlier, that they chose the time, this time, to sell Andrew's ba Andrew back his property is interesting. Double tap that screen, double tap that screen. I want to try and get 4,000 likes, please. Double tap that screen. New Bedford and Fairhaven. On July 21st, 1892, Emma and Lizzie Borden boarded the train for New Bedford from Fall, Fall River, from the Fall River Brownville Station, Bowenville Station. For Emma, the trip was long overdue. According to Rebecca Brunel, Brunel, the mother of the friend with whom Emma was traveling to stay, she told the reporter for the New Bedford Standard on August 25th, 1892, quote, Emma had intended to remain in Fairhaven all summer, yet... She had waited two months into her treasured vacation away from that house of hate. Why? Was it to make sure Lizzie boarded the train with her? Lizzie was expected in Marion, a seaside resort about 25 miles from Fall River. It was home to some very elite families who had summer cottages there. Dr. Handy was one such denizen. He offered his cottage to his daughter, Louisa, and her friends to enjoy for their summer vac vacations. Many of the girls had gone over earlier to begin their fun near the water. Lizzie had waited. Whether Anna washed her younger sister's face nervously as the train passed through heavily wooded scenery is unknown. The dramatic events escalating at the Borden home in the preceding months were certainly not lost on her. Break-ins, fights, beheaded pigeons, and rumors of theft. Was the relief that she was finally getting Lizzie away and would be free of her sister's theatrics and rages for a full, glorious, week, glorious peaceful six-week with friends she, had, she held dear? The Brownells came home. I'm sorry, the, the Brownells Cozy Home was only steps from the popular Fort Phoenix Beach, with all its recreation and soothing sea breezes. As a conductor shouted out the New Bedford stop ahead, Emma may have reassured Lizzie, it will all be all right, go and enjoy yourself in Marion. Emma and Lizzie alighted from the train, Emma would continue the short distance to Fairhaven by electric car, and she believed Lizzie would continue on to Marion, a short ride away. The sisters hugged and parted ways. Emma's trolley car turned, a bend, and vanished from sight. Lizzie did not continue on to Marion. She headed, she headed into downtown New Bedford to begin a secretly planned five-day visit. The plot thickens. Double tap that screen. I see you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. See if we can hit 4,000 likes. Double tap that screen. According to, uh, according to Office Medley's statement, Officer, Officer Medley's statement, made the day before the murders on August 5th, in accordance with instructions, I visited New Bedford. I found that Lizzie Borden arrived in that city on Thursday, July 21st, and went into Mrs. Poole's, the mother of a friend, a former schoolmate, living near South Water Street. While there, she never went out alone, always going in the company of the family with one exception, that being Saturday morning. July 23rd, when she went on the street to buy a piece of dress goods of some cheap material, being gone about one hour and 30 minutes. She went alone and returned alone. No one called to see her while she was there. She never made a mention of her family affairs. On Tuesday, Mrs. Poole and Mrs. Poole's daughter went to ride to Westport to see Mrs. Poole's daughter, who was a schoolmate of Lizzie's, and who was now married to Cyrus W. Tripp. 
They spent the day there, leaving enough time for Lizzie to connect with the train at New Bedford for Fall River. That was the last time the pool saw her. While at West Park, Lizzie saw no one outside the family. The report states that Lizzie went out alone on Saturday, July 23rd, two days after her arrival in New Bedford. She returned with a piece of dress goods or some sheet material. Lizzie never testified about buying sheet material while in New Bedford. In fact, her inquest testimony quickly changes to a purchase of a dress pattern instead. The report does not mention two other excursions Lizzie made during her trip to New Bedford, one of which occurred during the, that one hour and 30 minutes she stepped out alone onto the, onto the New Bedford streets. Thanks, guys. Keep double-tapping that screen. Trying to hit 4,000 likes tonight. Please double-tap that screen. Same thing over here. Facebook, YouTube, show me some love. Attorney Knowlton questioned Emma Borden during the Superior Court trial in June of 1893. Quote, had you seen Lizzie during the two weeks? Emma was vacationing with, Brattles, with the Brattles of Fairhaven. Emma, yes, sir. Knowlton, when? Emma, well, I can't tell you what day it was. Some few days, days after. She had been in Fairhaven. Knowlton, was it Saturday? Emma, no, sir. Knowlton, was it on her way over to or back from Marion? Emma, oh, I do know. She went to New Bedford when I went to Fairhaven. And I think it was the Saturday following our going Thursday. Knowlton, that is, she went to New Bedford the same day you went to Fairhaven. Emma, yes, sir. Knowlton, how long did she remain in New Bedford? Emma, until the following Tuesday. Knowlton, this is from Thursday until Tuesday. During what time do you know did she go to Marion? Emma, no, sir, she did not. Lizzie's secret trip to Fairhaven on that Saturday morning but she returned with a piece of dress goods and cheap material, gives one pause. Obviously, Mrs. Poole didn't know her visitor had hopped in an electric car that made a straight run from New Bedford to Fairfield. And why was it hidden from the police reports earlier in the investigation? Officer Medley concerning Fairhaven made out police reports on another matter. On August 13, 1892, Medley states, went to New Bedford today to investigate a man who was acting strangely in a drugstore on North 2nd Street, kept by William H. Drummond. A man stopped into the store, and he was hungry, bought a glass of soda and a few sticks of candy, lounged around the store a little while, looking once or twice up and down the street. He said he lived on Chestnut Street, Fairhaven, and went away. Description of the man, 5 feet 6, age 45 or 50, complexion dark, wore blue clothes. Yeah, okay. Did Lizzie make a quick run to Fairhaven to talk to a farmhand she may have known earlier, either from working on her father's farm or the Brunel farm in Fairhaven? At 45 or 50, the man may be out of work and looking for money. The description of dark complexion and blue clothes sounds like it could possibly be describing a Portuguese or, or farmhand. Men of that era did not wear blue suits. Lizzie was also friends with the Brunels and doubtless spent time with them over the years. Mrs. Brownell was, was interviewed by the New Bedford Standard on August 25, 1892. In speaking of the tragedy, Mrs. Brownell did not hesitate to speak strongly in support of Lizzie's innocence. She said that both of the girls always spoke in endearing terms of their father. That Lizzie found the need to buy a piece of cheap dress material to show the pools as her reason for being away on that Sunday morning is suggestive. The material is not never seen again. Did Emma lie for Lizzie? On the stand, was she said Lizzie's reason for being in Fairfield was to visit her? Fair, Fairhaven, I'm sorry. Or was Lizzie there to see someone else?
perhaps to run by the Morse relatives living in Fairhaven and see if they had just happened to have 80 Mustangs running around, to meet with a dark-complexioned farm worker, or a more chilling thought. Did Emma know about Lizzie's intent to kill Abby, a woman Emma detested even more than Lizzie, according to her testimony? Was Andrew's murder a tragic follow-up based on the turn of the clock's hands? Would this give a more ominous meaning to Lizzie's warning to Dr. Bowen the day of the murders when she asked him to telegraph Emma in Fairhaven? But don't tell the facts, for the lady whom she is staying with is old and feeble, and the shock may be too much for her. When Bowen left to send the telegram, Abby's body had not even been found yet. Was Lizzie afraid the shock would be to Emma, not the lady who was old and feeble? That their father was dead when the plan had been only to kill Abby. The telegram is stamped 11.32 a.m. Emma does not arrive home until 5 p.m. We are reading the history and haunting of Lizzie Borden. Yachting and Marion. Sloop, well, let me make sure I know this. this is the, way the, the owner of the yacht, Charles W. Anthony, is cruising with a party of friends, including Honorable Simon Borden, Honorable James F. Jackson, and messengers, M-E-S-S-R-S, Holder W. P. Uh, Durfee, William Winslow, and R. W. Bassett. Mrs. Poole's testimony to Officer Medley was that Lizzie was only out of their sight once, which was a clandestine outing Saturday morning. July 23rd, resulting in her trip to Fairhaven. Yet, she is spotted and reported on during an outing to Marion, only minutes from New Bedford, on Monday, July 25th, with the ladies with whom she was to vacation. On July 26th, she and the Pools visit, uh, the Pools visitor Augusta Tripp and nearby. She and the Pools visit Augusta. Oh, I see. Okay, sorry about that. She and the Pools visit Augusta Tripp and nearby Westport. Westport was also where John V. Morris's horses were being pastured. Suddenly, the trip to New Bedford to visit old friends shows a different agenda, one that went beyond horses. Lizzie plans a five-day trip to New Bedford when she's supposed to begin her holiday in Marion. Why? The Sunday visit to stay at, board, at a boarding house run by Mrs. Poole, her friend, Augusta Tripp's mother, seems an unlikely choice when Lizzie disappears that Saturday for an hour and a half and then returns with some dress goods or F-sheet material. What if the material was not just to establish an alibi? What if the real reason for a side trip to New Bedford was to buy some sheet material and have a dress made, one with special features and one she wouldn't mind disposing of later? Don't send a man. Wait until I see you. Is it a coincidence Andrew Borden mails a letter on January on July 25th, 1892, to John Morris, telling him not to send the man John has found to take charge of the farm, and to wait until I see you? Had word reached Andrew that Lizzie had not traveled on to Marion, but had made a detour to New Bedford? For whatever reason, Andrew told John to wait. Andrew's premonition that Lizzie was up to something became apparent when she suddenly arrived home Tuesday evening. July 26th. Indeed, she had not gone on to Marion and began her month-long vacation after all. The panic Andrew and Abby must have felt at this sudden turn of events when the wheels were turning on the deed transfer of the Swansea farm and the horses were en route must have bordered on Epic. From that Tuesday night's arrival until Lucy suddenly leaves again for Marion on Saturday, July 30th, we know nothing of the excuse she gave as to her seemingly random movements. She did go to Marion and spend the day with the girls at the Handy Cottage, Saturday, five days before the murders. 
but her thoughts were elsewhere. While seated around the table in the handy kitchen, one of the girls asked her, Lizzie, why don't you talk? Lizzie admitted to Alice Russell a few nights later that at that moment, something came over her that she could not shake off. Lizzie left and headed back to Fall River to put into action the events that would culminate in two deaths and the destruction of multiple livelihoods. The Mysterious Sunday. Double tap that screen, guys. Show me some love. Show me some likes. I'm trying to hit 4,000. I'm trying to hit 4,000 likes on TikTok. Double tap that screen. From the time Lizzie boards the train from New Bedford to Fall River, we have no reports of her for five days. There's nothing in the testimony or witness reports that show where she was during that time up until she shows up at the home unexpectedly early Monday morning, August 1st. It could be she didn't return home at all. Yet, we do know one thing. Alfred Johnson, the overseer at the Swansea Lower Farm, and Frank Eddy, manager of the Upper Farm, were both taken sick within the days leading up to the murders. Andrew Borden said John Morse to check on Mr. Eddy Wednesday afternoon, August 3rd, as he had been ill for a while. Alfred Johnson was still indisposed on Thursday, the day of the murders, August 4th, when Marshall Hilliard, the Fall River police chief, drove over to the farm to interview the men. Before Lizzie arrived home Monday morning, August 1st, she believed Andrew and Abby were headed to the farm that Monday to begin their summer vacation at the lower farm. People around town voiced surprise that Andrew was not over there, and Andrew had told John to write to him at the farm, so I won't have to bother with it, when John was ready to get the two cows for William, for William Davis. Abby told John that afternoon before the murders that they were expecting to go, but had changed plans at the last minute when Mrs. Vinicum couldn't accompany Abby to the farm. It was assumed they were going there. If Lizzie had a murder plot in mind, it would be the, it would be the farm where it would need to be carried out. The South Swansea Depot for the old Colony Railroad that ran from New Bedford and Fall River to Swansea was only a short five-minute walk from the Borden's lower farmhouse where the family summered. Carl Becker with the Swansea Museum told the author it was nothing for women to walk in those days, often a mile or more. Leonard Rebello, author of Lizzie Borden, Past and Present, walked it while helping with the research of this book. Five minutes is all it took. Farm wagons and hacks were always at the depot and happy to give someone a lift if they were heading that way. Lizzie hadn't been around the farm for at least five, days, five years, as she testified. It is possible no one in the vicinity of the depot recognized her. Lizzie walked down Gardner's Neck Road it was after five in the afternoon, and Alfred Johnson would be home at Andrew and Borden's other house up the road, across from the station or over at the Eddie's for supper. She knew the routine. Abby and Andrew were expected the next morning to begin their August vacation. Looking about her, Lizzie walked up the short dirt walkway to the farm, farmhouse's kitchen and inserted her key. She stepped into the room with a wood-burning stove, hand pump sink, a small table and chairs. It smelled of stale air after being shut up for so long. Alfred Johnson, who lived up the road, checked on it, kept the trees trimmed and the walls in the well primed, but for the most part it remained empty when the Borden family was not in residence. The ghosts of summers passed when the family sat around the old kitchen table, eating the fish Lizzie and Andrew caught that day, rose from the warm flooring and shimmered across the faded curtains. Ignoring the sudden fluttering in her stomach, she left the room. Lizzie walked down the halls of the back bedroom she used when she and Emma vacationed with their father and stepmother. 
Five years had barely changed it. She felt a tug on her heart when she saw the old apron hanging on a hook in the closet that she would wear when she fished Cole's River with her father, just down the slope outside. Her mood sank, bordering on depression, as she slumped into a chair near the window. She sat there until the shadows deepened, the room furnishings blurring in the ensuing darkness. At 4 a.m. the next morning, Alfred would leave a can of fresh milk on the porch step outside the kitchen in preparation for Borden's arrival. The milking was done at the barn under the, on the upper farm, only a buggy ride or train deep away. A new dress had been made in New Bedford for her, one with a loose pigeon blouse and full skirt. The new hatchet was obtained in a way that could not be traced back to her, and the arsenic was in her purse. Arsenic. She had written to her Aunt Mary Morse, who lived only eight minutes away in Warren, that she would love to visit her and the girls tomorrow, before she headed down to Marion to begin her August vacation. Let's see where we're at. Okay. As the final rays of light filtered into the small bedroom on Gardner's Neck Road, Lizzie reached into her satchel for the pouch of arsenic. See, we're talking arsenic. Lizzie Borden, right? She killed, she killed her mother, her father, her stepmother, right? If you like what you hear and double tap that screen, please double tap that screen. I'll just, and I'll continue. We're going to roll on this. Try and hit 4,000 likes today. As the final rays of light filtered in the small bedroom, on Gardner's neck row, Lizzie reached into her satchel for pouch of arsenic. She felt the soft weight of it in her hand and thought back to the night she broke into the Second Street barn to steal it from the painter's supplies. Would it be enough? She knew nothing of poisons, only what she had read. Would it, would it mix with milk and kill them? By five the next morning, Lizzie was locking the kitchen door to the farmhouse as she prepared to head home. As she walked down the dirt path that leads from the small barn, just past the farmhouse to Gardner's Neck Road, she glanced back to see the milk can waiting on the kitchen steps, glinting in the early morning sunlight. Chapter 7, Monday, August 1st, 1892, three days before the murder. It had not worked. The clouds above 92 Second Street hung low and dark, pregnant with rain. Although the temperatures had dropped from the debilitating heat, wave that had suffocated the city the week before, claiming 90 lives in its, 90 lives in its oven-like mall. The humidity at 8.45 that Monday morning clung to her bedroom drapes and wrapped around her face like a hot washcloth. Her corset shut off what breath had mustered its way up from her lungs, and perspiration puddled beneath the fabrics of her chemise, petticoat, waist blouse, and skirt. The two windows of her bedroom were open wide in hopes of a vagrant breeze. It served only to allow the relentless sound of horses' hooves, metal buggy trappings, people shouting, and the constant banging of metal against stone coming from Crow's Mason Yard, only 50 feet east of her window. Excuse me. The pounding found its way into her temples, a staccato rhythm mirroring the thoughts that would not abate. It had not worked. All her planning, the secret trips to New Bedford, her heaven and Swansea, all for naught. They hadn't gone to the farm after all. She heard her father's voice, coming through the wall that separated her bedroom from his. She had planned only to stop at the house, pick up a few things, and head to Warren to see her Aunt Mary, and then on to Marion. But they were still here. They usually left by 8 in the morning when they vacationed at the farm. Their plan to rob her of her inheritance would go through now. Perhaps. They were still going over later this morning. 
the milk would still be sitting on the kitchen steps at the farm. She had to hope for that. A loud bang from the Fall River Ice Company only two lots away made her jump. Her nerves were on edge. The, the constant sound of ice sliding down metal chutes played like background music to the repetitive beat of the stone cutter and the, and the rhythmic sawing from the laborer just on the other side of the fence, creating a jarring symphony with the clatter of carts out front. It was never quiet here. 92 Second Street was surrounded by commercial concerns as varied as any Main Street. From laundries to liveries, grocery stores to restaurants, the Borden House sat at the center of it all. While up on the hill, home was wearing cased in flower gardens, and the sounds that floated in through the glass lace curtains were those of birds and small children playing. Lizzie Borden sat upon her bedroom lounge that rested between the two windows facing south. Petite woman of 32 years of age, she stood five foot four. Her eye color deepened, depended, I'm sorry, on the descriptor. Many described them as light blue, others brown, and her passport from 1890 listed them as gray. Large, cat-like in shape, and slightly protruding, they looked out upon the world with an unwavering calm, though at times they flashed with anger, and a look described as peculiar by those on the receiving end. Those same eyes darted about the room now as her thoughts raced. Her mind was in overdrive. If they didn't leave for the farm this morning, all her plans would have to change, and quickly. They thought she was so stupid that she hadn't always been one step ahead of them. The arsenic she'd stolen from the barn when the house painter was there in May was now inside the milk can at Swansea. She had placed the white powder into the fresh milk, stirred it around with a nearby stick, and held her breath. It finally blended with the white foam, and she screwed the metal lid back in place. It had taken only moments, yet there had been a risk. Going there on the old colony railroad that ran right past the farm in South Swansea, hoping no one would recognize her and praying the farmhand had finished the afternoon chores and was gone. It was risky, but she was desperate, and no one had noticed her. It was perfect. Abby and her father would drink the tainted milk and die. On her way to see her Aunt Mary, only a few minutes by train from the summer home, she would stop and use the hatchet on their bodies, making it look like a mattock came in and killed them. Again, if you don't like what I'm reading, if it makes you uncomfortable, just move on. Do not turn me into TikTok police, Facebook police, police YouTube police, or Twitch police. Okay, Just move on. I have permission to read this book from the author and the publisher. Where am I at? Okay. By the time they were found, she would be safely away at Marion for her long planned vacation, and everything would be wonderful. It didn't matter now. They hadn't gone to the farm as planned. They were still here. An unbidden thought flitted through Lizzie's mind. What if someone else at the farm drank the poison milk? Alfred Johnson, the overseer, or Mr. Eddie? It caused her only a moment of hesitation, and she swatted away the image like an annoying fly. The lace curtains lifted beneath a momentary breath of air. The feeding odor of the Quisquashian River wafted into the room. I hope I said that right. I probably didn't. From only three blocks over, the biting, acrid smell of smoke billowing from the Fall River Ironworks chimney stunned our nostrils. The smokestack rose an impossible 350 feet in the air, its soot covering the town and perpetual dusting that maids washed from their employers' windows each Thursday. Her stomach tightened. She felt dizzy and nauseous. She 
What would she do now? Lizzie bent forward, lowering her head in an effort to quell the spinning sensations in her head. A sound like that of a rushing freight train filled her ears. Her father, obviously having gone downstairs, was saying something to Bridget below. Her eyes fell upon the dark paint stains along the lower portion of her blue Bedford court skirt she was wearing. The paint. Another plan. So perfect in this conception and execution. Gone. She was sick of the old faded dress, one she had not planned on wearing today or ever again. She was sick of the house, sick of the noise, sick of her life. Just then, the bell on the other side of her wall sounded in her father's bedroom. It was the extension of the front doorbell. She glanced at her small clock, 9 a.m. Who would be calling? Most everyone knew her father was supposed to be spending August at the farm. Lizzie crept out of her room onto the second floor landing and tried to see the front door. She took two tentative steps down the staircase and watched as her father crossed the front entry. Andrew Borden opened the door and said something in hushed tones to the person on the outside step. The noise from the street rushed in over his shoulder, along with a blast of humid air. Finally, he stepped back and allowed a young man in strange clothing to enter the front hall. The stranger wore dark pants with a darker stripe of material running the length of his leg. His shoes were most peculiar. Lizzie had never seen anything like them. They were a russet brown flat shoe that laced up with odd rubber-looking heels. He was carrying his soft felt hat in his hands as Andrew led him into the sitting room. Lizzie turned and climbed quickly to the landing, crossing into the guest room that sat next to her own bedroom. She hurried across the Brussels carpeting to the west-facing window and looked down to the busy street below. A hooded carriage was parked in front of the house. She could see only the knees and hands of the driver who was waiting inside. Tiptoeing to her room, she shut the door. Quietly, she closed her two windows to shut out the noise from the outside. She knelt down before the unused fireplace in her room. Reaching into it, she pulled loose the brick on the south side that shared a flue with the sitting room below. Picking up a four-inch length of plumber's pipe she had gotten from the box in the barn, she placed one end into the brick opening and, after seating herself on her bed, placed the other end to her ear. Four foot, I'm sorry, not four inches, four foot. Seeing an ear trumpet used by an elderly person had given her the idea. She had opened the flue in the sitting room fireplace over a year ago to overhear the conversations from that room, knowing no one would check it. That the fireplace in her room sat directly above the one in the sitting room below had allowed her a private means of eavesdropping, one she discovered by accident one evening when muffled voices drifted from the open flue to her room. She found by removing a brick from the south wall of her fireplace that shared the flue with the room below, she could hear plainly what was being said that her father and stepmother sat there exclusively to hold their discussions had been perfect. It was also where they sat with John Morris and conducted other business. At first, Lizzie had tried listening from her open window facing south, which sat directly above the sitting room windows, but the noise of the street and the crow stonecutters and, and stone made that impossible. Sitting on the stairs leading down to that room had garnered her only snippets of words and murmuring. Once the radiators had been installed, the fireplaces were strictly ornamental. A large bed was pressed before the fireplace in the guest room. One could see still the mantle behind it, 
Only the opening in the dining room had been walled over with thick front brick to offer room for more furniture and to keep out drafts. Its old wooden fireplace front rusted against the north wall of the barn, left outside the day of the murder loft outside the day of the murders. Parentheses. Only one fireplace in front is found during the investigations, and only one is mentioned as being walled up, which is the dining room. That the other fireplaces were still there is evident by the case drawings of the time and the position of Lucy's bed. Andrew and Abby's bedroom had been used as a kitchen when the house was originally built to accommodate two tenants, one upstairs and one down. A stovepipe opening identical to the one in the kitchen below their room closed off, a separate chimney opening allowing the release of wood and coal smoke from the cook stove below. It is still visible today. As Lizzie crouched in her bedroom, her breathing becoming more labored, muffled voices came through the fireplace opening, and she pressed the pipe closer to catch her words. It was obvious her father was keeping the conversation with the stranger low. She heard only snippets of the words, out of town, partner, you are mistaken. The young man's voice was stronger, and she realized from his words the plot to take away the Swansea farm from her went deeper than she thought. The deed would be signed over to Abby on Wednesday, only two days from now. Her lips pressed into a white chalk line. The game was on. The conversation ended, and Lizzie tiptoed out of her room and back into the guest room next door, her cheeks aflame. As she was crossing the landing, she heard her father say, a little too loudly, and what appeared to be a fake farewell to the person pretending to be interested in renting his store, and for her benefit. Come again when you're back in town, and I'll let you know. She looked down from the guest room window and watched as the young man walked down the short walk, opened and closed the front gate, and climbed into the waiting buggy, gesturing to the driver. He had only been with her father ten minutes. She noticed a man in a buggy seated near Hall livery across the street to the north, watching the two men as well. The rain snapped, and the buggy carrying the young visitor merged to the second street traffic. Lizzie strained to see the driver's profile through the opening at the back of the buggy. He appeared to be a young man as well, and she did not recognize him. She was running out of time. Her mind spun as she tried to come up with an alternate plan to stop Wednesday from coming, at least for two members of her home. A crack of thunder sounded from outside. The day was dark, the air sodden with moisture. Lizzie hid the plumber's pipe beneath her bed and left her room. She crossed along the short landing to the door facing her room, inserting a skeleton key into the lock. She entered a large room that functioned as the Borden sister's dress closet. The room measured about five feet by eight feet and was called a clothes press. The sole window was padded with an oilcloth and a long white sheet covered the dresses to alleviate dust and the sunlight from the fading brilliant colors of the silks. She selected a blue walking dress. As she left the room and turned to lock the door, her eyes fell on Abby's only garment hanging in that closet, on a hook toward the back corner. Lizzie's heart raced. There would be an empty peg in the crowded closet very soon now. The lingering odor of breakfast was fast being replaced by the fresh smell of soap flakes dissolving in hot water in the cellar. The pungent smell of starch wafted up through the open cellar door. As Bridget Sullivan, the Borden's maid of all work, sloshed the family's clothes in the washtub below. Thunder shook the house as Lizzie entered the kitchen, dressed to go out. Andrew had gone downstairs on his routine. Andrew had gone downtown, sorry, twice said it weird, on, on his routine rounds of business transactions.
Lizzie poured herself a cup of coffee, watching the darkening day unfold from the window above the sink. Abby entered the kitchen from the dining room. She jumped slightly at seeing Lizzie there. She and Andrew were still showing ragged nerves. Lizzie's unexpected return from her trip to Marion to begin her vacation had unsettled them a great deal. This was the second time she had started off, only to pop up like a jack-in-the-box days later. Good morning, Lizzie, Abby mustered as she stood there in the doorway. Did things not go well in Marion? You're not ill, I hope. Lizzie eyed her from the uh, from over the cup's rim as she sipped slowly at the hot coffee. I was worried about Father, she said in a low-measured tone. With you away at Swansea, I do not want him eating his noon meals alone here during the week. He works so hard, and he is no longer a young man. Abby paused, and then said in a voice that sounded meek and vulnerable, We have to postpone the trip for now. She noticed a sudden flush on Lizzie's face. Mrs. Vinicum was going to accompany me to the farm, so I wouldn't be alone when Andrew was taking care of his business concerns. She is ready to hear if her sister from out west is coming to visit or not. There's no need for you to forego your plans with your friends. You go on ahead. We can always go another time. Lizzie's thoughts were racing as she studied the short, stout woman before her. Abby was forgetting, with, was fidgeting with her skirt and smoothing a strange strand of hair, her nervous actions giving her away. I can't go right now, Lizzie finally managed. I'm expected to attend the, Christ, the Christian Endeavor Society meeting Sunday as I was asked to substitute as secretary for the recording of attendance in the minutes. It's the first Sunday of each month, and I can't break my word. I shall go to Marion on Monday, as I won't be needed at home. Perhaps I shall write to Aunt Mary and Warren and see if I might visit with her a day or two, perhaps, Thursday and Friday. I have not seen Elizabeth and Henrietta for a while now. Abby was not aware of the letter that the letter had already been sent, or the dates requested for Lizzie's visit were much sooner. If they didn't leave for the farm today, Lizzie would have to change her plans. Abby's face never went to mask its feelings, became a kaleidoscope of emotions. They went from surprise to fear. She struggled to find another excuse to get Lizzie away from the house before Wednesday afternoon, but she could find nothing. All right, guys, that's where we're going to stop. Let me turn this off. And we're getting closer to the actual murder. Cool. I want to thank everybody for coming tonight and listening, for everybody that stuck with it. Uh, again, uh, this show is uh, Sunday through Friday, We do, uh, and we have different types of guests on each show. Um, it could range anywhere from reading this book. It could range anywhere into talking about mur you know, murder cases, uh, you know, anything. Anything you can think of. Best way to see that is to check out our YouTube page at youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. You'll see the different types of shows we do. I'm a journalist, former journalist by trade. I've, you know, I've been doing that for years, so I like to mix it up a little bit. I want to thank everybody for coming tonight and listening. I know it's going to be a busy time of year for everybody with holidays. I really appreciate it. Tomorrow, I'll be back at 6.30 p.m. Pacific with Timothy Renner, and we're going to be talking about Mysterious Pennsylvania. So I'm looking forward to that. And that includes cryptids and, and UF, you know, UAPs and all kinds of creatures. So we're going to be talking with Timothy Renner about that. And that's tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific. For you guys on TikTok, that's YouTube.com forward slash at California Hunts Radio. And you guys on Facebook and Twitch and Twitter and YouTube know where to find me, obviously. The links will be running. 
But I want to thank everybody. Um, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We are all equal opportunity here at California Haunts Radio. And I'm just trying to get the word out about this show. We've been on for four years, and uh, so far we're doing pretty good. And we're building up really slowly, which is nice. All right? And again, I'll be back on TikTok on Sunday doing another read for this. Uh, we're going to continue the book. But well, I'm also going to be doing some stuff coming up here with uh, Psychic Karen Clark, where we're going to be doing live readings over there and you know some live readings and tarot cards and things like that and talking about our ghost hunts because I have been ghost hunting for 18 years and we've gone to some very, very interesting places. So I'm going to be telling stories about that as well. Anyway, I want to thank everybody and uh, Facebook, everybody over there. Thank you for coming tonight. And uh, have a great rest of your evening, TikTok. I will see you later. Oh, there it is. Wrong button. <laughs> there we are. Okay. All right. So I uh, will see you guys tomorrow, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, for Timothy Renner. And I hope you had a great night. And uh, enjoy the rest of your evenings. So let me cue you out of here. And we are out. Thanks for coming. <laughs>